If you will, please uh, t- take a Bible and turn to almost the end of the New Testament to Second Peter chapter 1. It's on page 1018 if you use one of these Bibles in the pews, 1018, 2 Peter chapter 1. And as you're doing so, before I read the passage, um, this past Tuesday was tax day, and something very strange, unprecedented happened and it affected millions of Americans. Perhaps it affected some of you if you waited until the last day to file your taxes online with the IRS, but the computer system at the IRS um, was knocked offline. And the problem lasted about 10 hours, uh, and, and during that 10 hours they were getting the, well, they turned it off and they turned it on. <laughs> and it took 10 hours, and so they rebooted the system. But millions of Americans were trying to file their taxes online that day, and they could not do so. So the deadline was moved to Wednesday. You may not have known that. It's another day you could have procrastinated, but they changed the deadline to Wednesday. And the IRS uh, says that the reason for what happened has been several years of budget cuts that have left them without the resources they need to upgrade the uh, computers since more and more Americans are filing their taxes online. Well, lack of resources, uh, that's, that's what's stated. Here in in Second Peter, the disciple Peter, who denied Jesus three times on the night he was arrested, and who also was the man that God used so mightily after the resurrection and ascension of Christ to preach on the day of Pentecost when thousands of people were converted. Peter is going to talk to us about resources that God has given to us to help us live the Christian life. So I'll begin reading in verse 1, though we'll just focus on uh, verses 5 and following here. Hear God's word. Simeon Peter, a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours by the righteousness of our God and Savior Jesus Christ, may grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence, by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. For this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue, and virtue with knowledge, and knowledge with self-control, and self-control with steadfastness, and steadfastness with godliness, and godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election. For if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. For in this way there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. 
So ends the reading of God's holy word. Peter, as I said, is writing to encourage believers who are discouraged. You ever feel discouraged with your relationship with Christ? Perhaps as you look at yourself and you see inconsistencies, you think, I have known these promises of God for years, maybe decades, and I don't see any progress in me applying them. Maybe you just see a consistent lack of faith or lack of zeal in general. Well, Peter is here to offer help. And I wanted to make the point that he was a disciple who denied Jesus because he knew what it was like to fall. He knew what it was like to fail and to persevere. I read some time ago of a man who worked with a uh, commercial investing firm. And they would look for opportunities, they would look for businesses, or they'd be contacted by businesses that wanted this firm to invest money in their business startups. And he would do the interviewing. This was the man who would make the determination, or he would take it to his board that then would make the determination whether to support, to invest in a certain business. And he was describing the kind of questions he would ask in the interview with the, uh, uh, the business entrepreneur. And beyond the, the, uh, what we would predict, he would say, tell me about your greatest successes. And then he'd say, I want to hear about your biggest failures. Now, what the interviewee did not know is that the second question is what he was mainly interested in. Tell me about your failures. Most of us, perhaps, would think, well, if I tell him about my failures, he may not invest. But what he wanted to know was, have you failed? And I want to hear how you've gotten back up. Because we're interested in in investing in realistic things that may fail, and we want to know, are you going to persevere? And if the person had never failed, he immediately wrote them off and said, we're not going to invest in this company. So Peter knew what it was like to fail. He knew what it was like to fall, to deny Christ, and yet be restored. And so if you get discouraged, if you say, well, I've fallen in one way or another, Or I'm in a fallen state, you might say. Well, there's some good news for you here today. How are we to persevere? Well, mainly we are to remember our resources, and that's what he is describing here. In verses 3 and 4, he says, Our goal is life and godliness. And we take the power of God, and to use a simple illustration that I'll use, as though you are like a light bulb, Christian, and here is the power of God. And what carries that power to the light are God's promises. They are like the wires that connect God's power and the light bulb. We're so used to hearing promises and making promises and almost expecting that some promises will be kept and some won't. And some people may make promises that they don't intend to keep or we know that life circumstances change or I meant it when I said it, but this is out of my control. I can't fulfill what I said. So we may think, so what good are God's promises, his promises in the Bible? Perhaps things will change, perhaps circumstances will alter, and God will have to change that. Promises are not appropriated, or when they cannot be appropriated, they're no good to us. They do not help. Let's say you have a friend that lives in New York City, and this friend says to you, the next time you're in New York City, call me, and I would like to take you out to dinner. Well, you're in Macon, Georgia. And you have no plans to go to New York City. Can that promise do you any good right now? No. And it may not do you any good if you go to New York City. But God's promises are not like that. They are appropriated, can be appropriated at any time, 
uh, in any place. Your whole Christian life is based on appropriating God's promises. And that's why he uses two terms here to describe them. And that is first the word precious and then very great. What is precious? What, what makes something precious to you? Perhaps it may be sentiment. You say this is a precious picture. It's, it's of my grandparents. It's the only picture I have of when they were young. Or it may be something of monetary value that's been passed down. Uh, it may be something that's very rare and you happen to have it and you say, this is precious to me. Or someone sees a, a, a newborn baby and says, oh, she's so precious. She's so precious. In other words, she seems so perfect. Look at her smile. Look at her complexion and so forth. There are no flaws in the righteousness of Jesus. And so he is precious. His promises are precious. And then he says they are very great. There are certain days when you're comfortable and things seem to be going well and your circumstances are as predicted and they seem to be going okay. And you may walk through your day and rarely even think about the promises of God. But then the storms come and things are not going well. Or you may be in pain or there are trials and every day is a trial of one nature or another. Believe me, if you're a Christian, at that point, that's when those promises become very great. They become very great to you. When Jesus was tempted by the tempter, he said, he quoted scripture and said, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Often in times of temptation, it's the promises of God that sustain us. When we are being tempted, when we are being tempted to not to believe him or to sin against him or in some uh, one of a thousand different ways, it's the promises like in 1 Corinthians 10 that says, No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability, but with the temptation he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. That's a promise and it becomes, it becomes very precious and it becomes very great to you when you are going through temptation. What about when you lack wisdom, when you're going through a trial? Now, I'm going to read James 1.5, a brief verse that is taken out of context, perhaps as much as any verse in the Bible. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. We used to joke that that was the verse of college students. <laughs> you know, you go to take a test, and you think about that verse. But I always had a prayer that I prayed in those tests, and that was this great prayer. I think Job or Moses, somebody, Lord, bring to mind things I have never read. <laughs> no, but in James 1.5, when he says, ask for wisdom, he's talking about in the context of trials. That's the context of that verse. Don't be alarmed when trials come upon you. And so in the midst of trials, when we're asking why or I don't understand, God invites us to ask for wisdom. Ask for wisdom as to why this is happening. One of my favorite promises is in Isaiah chapter 43. Just one of many where God just says, I will be with you. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you. Isaiah 43, 2. And so these promises are what connect us, you might say, to the power of God as a believer. And then he says, beginning in verse 5, For this very reason, make every effort, or give all diligence to supplement your faith. And he begins with a list. 
a list of characteristics we see starting in verse 5 that we are at to add to our faith. We believe we're saved by faith alone. There's nothing you and I can do, any moral code, any effort on our part to earn God's favor. We are redeemed through the blood of Christ. We're made new creatures in Christ. And it's strictly by faith, his grace through faith, not our own efforts. But once we are redeemed, then we are to pursue godliness. And so he gives this list of things we are add to faith. Now, don't misunderstand. I'll, I want to come back to that in a moment about our effort and, God, and, and God's grace. But what is this list that we're to use to supplement, that we're to make every effort to, to add to them? Well, first he mentions virtue or goodness. Uh, that we're not to coast through our Christian life, but we are to run the race with energy and strength and passion and enthusiasm. And then he says, add to that, beyond virtue, add knowledge. The Great Commission says that we're to make disciples of all nations, teaching them all that Christ has commanded. We need doctrine. We need to know Scripture. Um, but it's more than simple head knowledge. It, it's insight. It's enlightenment to understand the Christian life, to understand the nature of temptation and trials and who I am and who you are and the knowledge of ourselves, the knowledge of how God works, the knowledge of how God forms us into the image of Christ, knowledge about trials and temptations and the results of sin. We need knowledge. Then we're to add also to that self-control, control over every area of our life, eating, drinking, sleeping, and so forth. I heard a pastor say he, he was up to 100 crunches a day. Nestle's crunches. And so regardless of your, your spiritual life and, and physical life, they cannot be separated. Uh, if you mistreat your body or you experience illness, it will affect you spiritually, right? I mean, I remember R.C. Sproul talking about a a very dignified southern woman that he saw and she'd had cancer and she'd gone through some very very difficult treatments for her cancer and she was at church one day and he said it's so good to see you and he said how are you doing and in her way and I, I can't do the accent she said R.C. it's hard to be a Christian with your head in the commode I mean when our bodies how we treat our bodies has a direct effect on, on our spiritual lives and so I find, and this is my own personal experience, very subjective, that the more disciplined I am physically with eating and exercise, it seems to bleed over to my devotional life. And when I'm, everything's chaotic with self-control and just basic disciplines, it seems to carry over in the same way I, in, in my spiritual life. That may just me, be me. It may not affect you. But I heard years ago someone in taking subcategories of self-control, they talked about ma Christian maturity as the ability to exercise self-control, especially in the big seductives of life. You say seductives. What's meant by that? These are big areas that if there's no self-control, they can wreck your life in a hurry. Well, what are the areas? The three they mentioned, and I have no reason to disagree, it seems to make sense, is speech, money, and sexual temptation. You think about the tongue. 
and our speech. Proverbs 10, 31 says, The mouth of the righteous brings forth wisdom, but a perverse tongue will be cut out. Proverbs 13, 13, easy reference to remember. 13, 13, He who guards his lips guards his soul, but he who speaks rashly will come to ruin. We can uh, devastate our lives and those around us with our speech. We can also do it with money. When Christ said no one can serve two masters, either he will hate the one and love the other, or he'll be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. Now, he's not condemning wealth there. He's just saying one is going to be served, God or material things. Some of us can serve it by being greedy. We can serve it by debt to where our lives are are controlled by debt. We can serve money by our unwillingness to trust God, to provide by faith. You can be poor, you can be wealthy. In any of these states, we can serve money. We can violate that. So that's an area that needs self-control. The third area is sexual temptation. And it was Peter himself that in the previous epistle, in 1 Peter, he said, Dear friends, I urge you as aliens and strangers in the world to abstain from fleshly lust, which wage war against your soul. Controlling what you look at and think about and see and making choices to avoid temptation and to flee the occasion of temptation. Self-control is our responsibility. It is a fruit of the Holy Spirit. If you were here with us last week when we looked at Galatians 5, but it's also our, our choice. Then he goes on, back to the list. He adds to this steadfastness, endurance, to keep on pressing on, godliness, brotherly affection, your attitude toward fellow Christians, and last of all, the highest, he says, is love or charity. Love toward all people. Not, he says brotherly affection toward believers, but love toward others. I really like how John Piper takes that paragraph and he paraphrases it. I want to read it to you. As you have obtained faith in Christ and stand in it, in other words, you've you've been redeemed through faith in Christ, now apply yourself diligently to advance in moral excellence. And as you stand in that, do not be satisfied, but press on to increase your knowledge of God's will. And as you stand in that, Do not be satisfied, but be diligent to enlarge your capacities of self-control and mastery of your passions. And as you stand in that, don't be satisfied, but cultivate every form of patience and serenity. And as you stand in that, let devoutness and piety and sweet love to God flourish. And in that, strive to kindle your affection for other believers and in and through it all to grow in love toward all men. So if you're, say, if you're sitting here today and you say, I've gone as far as I can go in my sanctification, no, you haven't. As John Piper would close, forward, forward, press on, advance. How does this fit with grace? If you're talking about self-control and doing these things and knowledge, that means study. That means reading. That means listening, learning. I mean, all these things involve some kind of effort. And we live with this tension of God's grace and our effort. I heard a story 
read a story some time ago that I think helps me to understand it. Let me share it with you. This really happened, unlike most stories preachers tell. I mean, this one really happened. There's a married couple, an older married couple named Robert and Glenda Lennon. They were on their very nice boat, more like a yacht. They were four miles off the coast of Florida, and they were fishing, just the two of them, off their yacht. Glenda decided to cool off by taking a swim. So she gets in the water, and much to her surprise, she finds that there's a very strong current, and it takes her. And it's going, the current is too strong for her to swim back to the boat, though she is a very good swimmer. Her husband hears her shout out at him, and without thinking, did the worst thing possible, he dove in to swim after her, but then he realized that he could not swim against the current, and so now they are both being carried away in this strong tidal current, and there's no one on the boat. She was a very good swimmer. He was a champion swimmer. So they came up with a plan. They knew it was a tidal current. It would eventually turn but it would be several hours. So here was the plan. She was to tread water and not expend much energy and just drift with the current. He was going to swim toward the boat, knowing he couldn't reach the boat, but trying to keep the boat in view until the tide turned. So he keeps swimming, and after six hours, the tide turned, and he was able then to swim to the boat, get aboard, crank the boat up, go back, but it was dark, and he couldn't find his wife. Now, fortunately, the next morning, there was a search, and they found her, and she was alive. She was okay, 20 miles away, still in the water. Now, here's my two spiritual um, applications or lessons from this illustration. First, about floating. If you try and just float along in the Christian life, no effort, I, you know, I'll, I'll, hear, I'll hear somebody preach, you know, take half an hour on Sundays, and that'll be all the spiritual nourishment I get, that, that's it. I'll just float along. If you try to float in the Christian life, you will not stay where you are. You will not. And it's scary because you don't know where you'll end up, but it's probably not going to be in a good place. Your heart will harden, you'll grow dull in your affections for the Lord, and you will just drift and drift with the tide of temptations. Okay, that, that's what will happen. It may not happen overnight, and because it happens so slowly, you, won't, you may not even notice, but those around you will begin to notice. So that's my first lesson. The second is like Glenda's husband, Robert. You swim with all your effort. You swim and you swim, and it's an evidence that God is at work within you. You do it because you have faith in Christ, and you're trying to advance in the qualities of godliness. You're not trying to earn God's favor. You're not trying to be saved through your efforts. You're trying to grow in godliness, as Peter is exhorting you here. Now, at the end, I'm jumping toward the end of the passage. Now, Peter is going to give two promises. In verse 10, he says, If you practice these things, the list that we just went through, you will never fall. He didn't say we'll never sin. He's just saying you don't need to fear that I'm going to fall away and lose my faith. 
Nothing's more discouraged than our various fallings. And I said Peter knew that very well. But you will never fall. If you do this, he makes a promise to you. Uh, you don't have to worry, really. Will a year from now I become apostate? Will I, a couple of years from now, be one who is speaking publicly, denying the things of the Scriptures, as we see people around us that do? He says, if you practice these things, you will never fall. In verse 10, verse 11 is the second promise I want to point out to you. And that is, there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And one of the greatest motivations for pursuing godliness is that when we go to be with the Lord forever, he will welcome us warmly. We have Christ speaking about that, well done, good and faithful servant. But in some sense, I believe from this passage, some mysterious sense, there is going to be a special, special welcome to those who sought to express their gratitude of his grace through a life dedicated to cultivating godliness. Now, we know about welcomes in the Bible. The prodigal son probably is the best-known welcome in the Bible. Here's this son who insults his father, demands a share of inheritance while the father's still living. Basically, I mean, you were to wait until the relative died before you demanded an inheritance. He goes off, he squanders it while living, and yet the father is looking for him, yearning for his son whom he loves so much, yearning for his return. And then we have the scene, the, the fourth of five scenes in the prodigal son where the father looks out and he sees the son from a long distance. And what does he do? He runs. When I talk to the Asian students, introduction to the Christian faith at First Presbyterian Day School, I would ask them, and it would evoke laughter, how many of you have ever seen your father run? Because that's not... None. I never saw my father run. My whole life. And it wasn't until late in his life that he was not able to run. It's not because he was paralyzed or because he, he could. I just never saw my dad run. That wasn't dignified. In the case with the prodigal son, the father runs to him. It wasn't dignified in that culture either. But he pursues him, and of course it's just this amazing welcome. I love welcomes. I was reading this past week of, of welcomes. You know, I, li I like to see when people, they said, this, this woman has a sister, a twin sister, and they're separated for a long, long time. They finally reunite, and they'll have these shows on TV with that. I, I like to see that. It's just, it's, just, it's just amazing to me. But I read one that really may have taken the cake. That happened while, uh, quite a while ago. It's in Russia. A young guy, 20 years old, marries a, a girl who lives in his neighborhood, his sweetheart. They get married, but after only three days of marriage, he has to leave with the Russian army. And while he is gone, her family is taken to Siberia. Her family being this, this uh, 18, 20-year-old gal, her parents are taken uh, under Stalin to Siberia. There's no communication. The man returns to his childhood home 
60 years later at age 80. And he looks at the house next door and he sees this woman and their eyes meet and she knows it's him. She had never married and she's back there now. And he comes over and he says, you are the love of my life and I've never forgotten you. How would you like that? To get married when you're 20 and you're reunited when you're 80. All the welcomes in all the world will never compare to the welcome that God has for his children. Figuratively, there is a banner over the entrance of heaven, and it says, Welcome home, sinner. Welcome home. That's what God has in store for us. Let's pray together. Our Father, we can't live the Christian life on our own efforts. All of this has to be worked by the Holy Spirit, but pray for those of us today that may be discouraged because of our relationship with you. It isn't what we want it to be. We're not where we want to be as far as being effective and fruitful, and yet you make some amazing promises here. So we pray that whatever our circumstances, and they vary with each person here, whatever our stage in life, whatever things we face, we pray that we will uh, trust you and lean on your promises daily to draw upon those And we thank you for that. Thank you for the gospel that through Christ we become new men and women, new creatures in Christ. And that you will continue that good work which you began within us until the day of Christ Jesus. And we pray in his name. Amen.